believe it or not, here, almost halfway through the Roman epistle. And so turn to Romans chapter 8. We're going to start Romans chapter 8 tonight. Uh, in many people's opinion, many scholars believe this, and, and, and you can find many who agree with this, um, that this is one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. Uh, when we get to chapter 8, we're going to see that Paul is going to start tapering his teaching on sanctification. We know that he has been there for quite some time. Uh, eight lessons for us. And he is looking here tonight, as we start chapter 8, he is moving toward closing that section out. And he's going to use a term, and you're going to notice that term. I'm going to make sure that you notice that term. In fact, when you're reading Scripture, always notice this term. When you see the word therefore, there's something very important that has preceded that term. Uh, we know this. Chapters 1 through 7 <laughs> have preceded this therefore. The Apostle Paul has been teaching of the early church many things, many doctrines, theology, things that they need to know. Um, and we, we've seen this the whole way. And so when we look at this tonight, when he starts chapter 8 with the therefore, He's then going to move into the whys, um, the, the how this came about when he's going to get to the term, therefore there is no condemnation. He's going to explain, because of everything that we have taught up until this point, Romans chapter 1, we know 1 all the way from 1 to 117, Paul gave us the reason and the theme for Romans. And what is that reason and that theme? It is the gospel of God. And he told us that it was God's gospel, that this has been God's plan from the beginning, that through this gospel a righteousness apart from the law has been revealed, and that is a righteousness that comes from God. In chapter 118 all the way to 320, we, we learned this. He talked about the fact that man in and of themselves, in their sin nature, in their old nature, their flesh, whatever we want to use to define that, you know who you were before you were in Christ. That's who he's talking about. And he lets us know that that man, apart from Christ, was condemned. That condemnation was all over him because of sin. And that we needed a righteousness that comes from God because we could not establish righteousness for ourselves. Chapter 3, we know he goes from 3.21 all the way to 5.20 or 21. And he taught us about justification by grace through faith and that alone. And that this was provided by God. 6.1 until where we are right now. We know in chapter 6 he started talking to us about the doctrine of sanctification. As we move into chapter 8, he's going to wrap all of this up. All of his teachings thus far, which I hope and I pray, and I'm sure that it does because every time I read this it brings in my life, and I hope it does in yours, great hope, great assurance for those of us who are in Christ. Uh, because He has done this great work and is doing, continually, even through sanctification, this great work of salvation in and through us for His glory. So we're going to read this. We're going to read four verses tonight. Romans chapter 8. <laughs> we're going to look at verses 1 all the way to verse, verse 4. So verse 1 says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that good? Because I told you when we were in 1 all the way to 3.20, it was nothing but the fact that we're condemned without Christ. We're condemned in our sin. We're totally depraved. We're we're totally um, in, incapable of being saved of our own power and strength because of that sin. And he says this in verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in sinful man why in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. We know as we've been talking about sanctification, we, we have been talking about the new life in the Spirit, uh, that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. 
So what Paul is doing here in these first four verses, he's doing a little bit of review. Now, I don't know about you. I do know about me. I never get tired of talking about the things that we're going to talk about tonight. Those things were defined for us in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 8. And these things are the reason that there is now no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ. How many of you are thankful for that? Because we know that we are worthy of condemnation in our old nature. But he has spent all of this time, seven whole chapters, teaching us that, yes, you're not worthy. And yes, you are a sinner. And yes, you do fail to meet God's required righteousness. However, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you have been justified. You have been sanctified. You are continually being sanctified. And there is great hope in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at these four verses, Paul is going to teach us that there is freedom from condemnation. And that that freedom from condemnation is first, you write this down, it's there in your outline, provided through justification. And before you say, oh no, are we going to talk about justification again? Yes, we are. We're going to talk about justification again. We're going to talk about it again and again and again and again. And the more you look at it, the sweeter it becomes. The more you look at this doctrine, the more hope that you have, not in yourself, but in Christ. The more you look at this doctrine, the the larger God's grace becomes. The more you look at this doctrine, the larger God becomes. And I want you to leave this study when we finally finish chapter 16 at some point in time. I want you to leave this study with a higher view of God and His grace and a lesser view of you. Justification reminds us of that over and over and over again. So verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. We know that Paul, just a few chapters ago in chapter chapter 6, told us this. He said, the wages of sin is what? Verse 23, death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know about you, but I am thankful that I have been justified even though I didn't deserve it. And when we learned about justification before we get to this point of review, when we learned about it back in the chapters where he covered it, what do we learn that justification means? Does anybody remember? It is a declaration of righteousness. That we have been declared righteous. Not because of our own righteousness. He spent quite some time showing us we have none of that. We're declared righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ that has been given to us by a sovereign God who has allowed us to receive that gift, and faith is a gift in case you forget that. Ephesians tells us that. He's given us that gift that we can believe. He's given us that gift that our will does change. Our will that was once in contrast to the holiness of God is now a will, just like we talked about last week with Paul in Romans chapter 7, his struggle. He had that old will, the old nature, wanting sin, but yet he had that new nature desiring God and desiring obedience to God's law. Justification has been declared for us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God has declared us as righteous. Again, let me remind you, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. Not by works. Why? So that no one can boast. You remember way back when when we were talking about boasting? Where's boasting? What did Paul say? Excluded. No room for us to boast. We have nothing to boast about other than to boast in Christ, our justification. When we look at this provided justification that we see there in the first two verses, Paul reminds us of that. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to he who is in Christ. Why? Because you have been justified. You have been declared righteous. Romans chapter 3, he told us this, verse 20. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ. So we we have looked at that. We have talked about that verse. We spent quite some time in those verses in chapter 3 while we were there. This is a declaration of righteousness, meaning this, you did nothing, nothing to become righteous on your own. 
In fact, He declared you righteous and it led to your belief. Please understand that. So those, every one of those, just as we read in chapter 3, all who believe, right, are then declared as righteous. Aren't you thankful for that? That when we believe by faith and trust in Jesus Christ, again, faith being that gift that God gives us, where He changes our mind, He changes our heart and allows us to believe in that, He then declares us as righteous, not by the works that we do, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith. It's all a work of God. So we see that He provided justification. That justification was provided by grace alone. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, you go back up to 4 and 5, He talks about that grace again, but because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were what? Dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Paul does not want these people to forget these teachings. He's telling them this. All these things I've been teaching you up until this point is so that I can tell you now there's no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. That though you once were condemned because of your sin, right? Isn't that what Jesus in His conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, isn't, what, isn't that what He covered? That we're all condemned, those of us who don't believe. But those of us who do believe, He frees us from the condemnation that was upon us. So, when we look at a declaration of righteousness, it is by grace alone. It is through faith alone. Y'all remember this, right? Good. Get it. Be excited about it once again. Grace alone, through faith alone. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 16, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So this is very important as we're closing out sanctification. He wants us to remember. You can't just start living the law and think that that's going to bring sanctification. That's going to bring legalism. You can't do that. You must be justified first, and in being justified then, and only then, will you then be able to walk in true holiness and righteousness because you're not justified by observing the law. Justification comes before sanctification, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, watch this, no one will be justified. So when we talk about justification, it's through grace alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone. And then we learned what? And Paul wants us to remember this again. He says it here. It is in Christ alone. Therefore, there is no now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We talked about this when we use the term in Christ. You can't be in the world and in Christ. That's two different destinations and you can't be in two different places. In fact, we know this, the New Testament teaches this, that if we're still in the world, we're not really in Christ. So we need to pay attention to those things. We need to examine our lives and see what are we really in? Are we in the world or are we in Christ, because if we're in Christ, it is Christ alone who justifies us. Acts chapter 13. You guys need to write this down. There's going to be a bunch of them. So Acts chapter 13, verse 38. He says, Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. He said, everything that you failed in and you tried to do, you couldn't do it, and you sinned, he says, you couldn't be justified that way. But in Christ, you can be justified from everything that you could not succeed in in the law. And you think about that for a second. You think of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, you take that Decalogue and you say, okay, everything that I couldn't keep here, Jesus Christ kept it for me. And He justified me through His righteousness. That's why I'm justified. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your only hope for true justification is Christ and Christ alone. Unless we have been justified in Christ, we can take this passage and know this, that we're still condemned. If you're here today and you have not been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and that alone, I want to remind you, and I want you to get this. I don't want to leave this, because Paul didn't leave it. In fact, Paul is saying, here's the reason there is no condemnation. Number one is because of justification. If you have been justified, then you are cleansed. You're not condemned. No sin will ever be held to your charge. Did you catch that? 
No sin will ever be held to your charge. I'm going to say that one more time in case there might be a few Christians in here. No sin will ever be held to your charge because Jesus is our justification. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have been justified. Therefore, because we have been justified, there is therefore now no longer any condemnation upon those who are in Christ. Please understand that. Paul wants you as a believer to understand that. Because doesn't the devil like to try to heap condemnation upon you again? Doesn't your own fleshly mind try to heap condemnation upon you again? Don't just blame the devil. Sometimes the devil doesn't have anything to do with it. Sometimes it's you. And the good news is there's no condemnation, whether it comes from you, whether it comes from the devil, whether it comes from that person who always wants to remind you of your past and your past mistakes. There's now no condemnation to he who is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because freedom from condemnation has been supplied for you, provided through justification. Anyone who doesn't believe in Christ is condemned already. And because they are condemned already, they are still in a state of condemnation. Please know that. You entered into the world in that state. You were born condemned already because of your sin nature. Thanks be unto God through Jesus Christ who died in our place so that we could now receive justification and freedom from condemnation through that provided justification. So we see freedom from condemnation is first of all provided through justification. Secondly, it's powered by God. It's powered by God. I I love this part of this. Don't miss this in this verse. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And all God's people said, Amen. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did. God did. You didn't did. Your grandma didn't did. Your wife didn't did. Your decision didn't did. Your little prayer didn't did. God did. I want you to pay attention when you see things like that in Scripture because then you give credit where credit is due. God did. When when you were powerless, why were you powerless? Paul's already talked about this because the law actually aroused your sinful nature. And your sinful nature was aroused and you began to be disobedient just because God said be obedient because you didn't have it in you to be obedient because you were separated and alienated and cut off from God and His holiness and His righteousness. However, God did. This is powered by God. This is Paul going back all the way to Romans chapter 1 and reminding you, it's God who's doing all of this. It says God did. When you couldn't do it, you were powerless. God wasn't. It's a work of God because we are powerless in and of ourselves against sin. Romans chapter 3, Paul taught us about this and talked about this to us. Verse 9, it said, what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. Speaking from the Jewish perspective, they have the law, they're trying to keep it. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Did you catch that? No one. Let me help you out and let you understand what that means in the Greek a little clearer. Would anybody like clarity in the Greek? Not a single soul. No one. That's for all the people who don't believe in man's total inability and total depravity. I don't even know why we argue that. This verse clears that up completely. There's never been a one other than the Christ. There's never been anyone who was capable of doing right and who sought God. Don't forget that part of this verse. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So when you hear people tell their little story and they say this, I was walking along in my sin and I began to seek God. No, you didn't. God did. Did y'all read that first part? When you were powerless because of the law, because of your sin, God did. He goes on and he says, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. How many? They have together become worthless. What? That's for all the preachers who 
get up there and they say things like this to their congregations, if you can even call them congregations, to their support groups. And they tell them, you're all children of God and you're all good. No, you're not. Not apart from Jesus Christ. Not apart from what God did. He is the power behind all this. Paul's reiterating this again. In case you missed it the first 500 times that he's done that in this theological discourse. He says, together we have become worthless. There's got to be some worth in us somewhere. <laughs> no, there's not. And the quicker that you understand that, the quicker you see the magnificent grace of Almighty God, His power to save wretched, sinful people like ourselves. There is no one who does good. How many? <laughs> and then he clears it up again in case you missed the original Greek about all. Not even one. Not even one. He goes on and says, can we keep reading this? Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Sounds like me before Christ. I don't know about you. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I'm thankful when there was no fear of God before my eyes. God did. God did. Don't miss that term in this verse here in verse 3 of Romans chapter 8. Because this freedom from condemnation was powered by God. Thank Him for the mercy that He showed you. Thank Him that He noticed you and your inability to ever, ever begin to meet His standard, His requirement, His perfection, His holiness. And in His mercy and His love for you, He through His power did. He did free you from the condemnation of sin. This is a work of God. Why? Because we're powerless. Romans just told us that. We don't have the power to do it. Romans chapter 3, again, he taught on it for nine verses there. Verse 9 all the way through 18, what we read. Psalm 58, 3 says this about us. Even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. Remember that next time you think your children are, well, they're kind of good. No, they're not. They're sinners, and they got it from you. You got it from your daddy. You got it from his daddy. You can trace it all the way back to Adam. And the seed of sin was placed into man. It was a curse that came upon all men. And we know this. Because of that, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God ever since. But thanks be unto God that our freedom from the condemnation of sin has been lifted through the power of God. God did. God did when natural man was incapable. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said it like this, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. No one can come to Me, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is the Father who draws you. It is not you making some decision to get your best life now or have a better life on this earth or change your ways. <laughs> because the truth be told, even if you intellectually want to change your way, what did Romans just tell us here in chapter 8? You were powerless to do so. But when you were powerless, God did. He did a work. He did a work of Himself because you were powerless. Natural man was and is incapable Natural man's not only incapable, natural man apart from Christ is ignorant. We're ignorant to the things of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 says, As obedient children, again talking to those who've been redeemed, he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. It's pretty clear, isn't it? How many of you lived in ignorance until you were brought into the light? And let me tell you this, if God had not done what we're reading that God did, you would still be in your ignorance. It is Him who rescued you, not you who threw God a rope and said, hey, pull me up. You were ignorant of God, ignorant of the things of God, ignorant of righteousness. Yet in your ignorance, through His power, God did. He did remove the condemnation that was upon you because of sin. Freedom from that condemnation was granted to you. Natural man was incapable, ignorant, insensitive to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. We were 
totally insensitive to God. Why? Because the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Going back to what Jesus said in John chapter 3, unless you're born of the Spirit, unless you're born again, you don't know the things of the Spirit. All you know are the things of the flesh. And we've been learning this, right? The things of the flesh are going to always what? Leads into sin. But thanks be to God, He did what we couldn't do. Because, as Paul just said, we were powerless. We were powerless because we were incapable, ignorant, and insensitive to the things of God. Through God's power and His power alone, please understand that, that we are saved from our sins. Salvation is a sovereign work of God. So we see that Paul reiterating this, claiming that these things are what give us freedom from condemnation. He's told us that they are provided, that freedom is, excuse me, provided through justification. It is powered by God. God did what He did when we were still powerless. In fact, again, Ephesians says we were dead in our sin. And He made us alive. And then we see thirdly, as we continue to read there in verse 3, freedom from condemnation provided through justification powered by God, but paid for by atonement. What He says in the second part of verse 3 there, as we continue to read, He says, for what the law... Let's go back to the beginning. Therefore, there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. How did He do it? Watch this. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in sinful Man, you know why you're free from condemnation? Because sin was condemned by Jesus Christ for you. An atonement was made. That atonement, and I know we, we've used that word a lot, haven't we? Do you know what it means yet? Isn't it good? Huh? Isn't it good that He made the atonement? He was the atoning sacrifice that brings us to God. What When we were powerless to come to God, God did by the atonement of Jesus Christ, save us from certain condemnation by condemning the sin that once had us condemned. I wish there were some Episcopals here so one of y'all would shout. God did this. And He paid for it by atonement. Why? Because there was atonement that had to be paid. Without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Remission of sin. Hebrews, we know in chapter 9, it tells us that. We see, as we look at this payment, it's a substantial atonement, isn't it? Substantial. Uh, this is a big deal. In fact, when we look at the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we're all here. Not only are we all here, the blood-bought church around this entire world exists. Throughout history, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ that has existed and the blood-bought Jesus church that will continue to exist all exists because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a substantial atonement. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26, it says, Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world if He was like any other high priest. But now He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Once for all. He died once for all who will believe and trust in Him by faith and be justified according to the plan and power of God. It was paid for by the atonement of Jesus Christ, a substantial atonement. I love to see that atonement still being applied. Week after week after week, when the blood is applied to those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ in the midst of our fellowship, or in the midst of talking to a stranger on the street, to know that God is still alive and he is still well and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is still making a substantial atonement for sinners and evildoers like myself. It is a substantial atonement and it is also a substitutional atonement. I know that if for some reason I don't even understand the debate. There is a big debate in modern evangelical circles about the penal substitution of Jesus Christ. And was it necessary or was it not? 
Let, let me just tell you this. It was necessary because that's how God did this. We just read that. God did this by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Why? So that He could condemn sin in sinful men. And He condemned that sin because Jesus Christ substituted Himself in our place on the cross. Please know that. I'm going to try not to get emotional when I talk about this. It's very hard. Those nails were ours. The crown of thorns belonged to us. The whips upon His back, He bore them in our place. The wrath of God that was showered down upon Him belonged to Kirk Hall. The death He died was mine. Every ounce of suffering that He endured was mine. He died in our place. We cannot, listen to me men, we cannot debate, argue, even bring it up for discussion whether the penal substitution of Jesus Christ is biblical. In fact, if you take out the penal substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it becomes non-biblical at that moment. Biblical Christianity is defined by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So please understand that. Christ died in your place. Do not forget that. Anyone who says anything other than that is foundationally, you were here Sunday, you heard me talk about secondary and tertiary issues that don't matter. This matters. Anyone who denies the penal substitution of Jesus Christ is foundationally wrong. Therefore, they are heretics and they are promoting heresy. I'll show you why. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Sounds like Jesus substituted Himself for us there, doesn't it? He substituted Himself for me. He took on my sin, and He credited to me the righteousness of God that belonged to Him. That's substitutionary in case you missed what substitutionary means. We go on and we read about this in other places in Scripture, and I won't take you to all of those things since that's not the point of this message, though it could quickly become that, and I'd be fine with that. The first Peter says this, chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for the righteousness, live for righteousness, excuse me, by His wounds, you have been healed. Sounds again to me like Jesus stepped up and stood in our place. It was our sin that He went to the cross and was punished for. Let's not forget this. Jesus committed no sin. In fact, even those who were accusing Him, Pilate himself says, I find no fault in this man. You know what? Pilate couldn't have said that about anyone else. Why? Because there's none righteous. No, not one. Not even one. But as he examined Jesus and he examined everything that was going on around Jesus and all the circumstances involved, Pilate, now let me tell you this, who every single day judged people and sentenced them to death. In fact, there were two there with Jesus that Pilate himself would have had to also sentence to death. And you know what? Both of them were worthy of death. But yet he looked at the Christ and he said, I find no fault in this man. Yet Jesus, according to the plan and power of God, went to the cross without fault, to bear your fault, to bear my fault, to bear our sin, and to free us from the condemnation thereof. There is therefore now no condemnation to he who is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Paul is reminding them of that. We can never, ever water this doctrine down, neglect to preach and to teach and to live this doctrine. This is the essential doctrine of the New Testament church, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Without that, we would still be lost and dead in our sins and in our transgressions, condemned and on our way to hell. We see that it was paid for by atonement, substantial atonement, substitutional atonement, and satisfactory atonement. Satisfactory atonement. That means this. Next time you think that you've done something so bad that God can't forgive you, let me remind you of this. Your forgiveness is not based on your ability to do good or to do bad. Your forgiveness is based upon the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is a satisfactory atonement. What does that mean? Colossians chapter 1 talks about this. Watch this. Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. We love to stop there. That's great. 
But he's also pleased of everything else that follows after that. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, how did he reconcile these things unto himself? Why does this please him and how does he receive pleasure? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What a magnificent atoning sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave for us. It satisfied and pleased the Father. It is, it was, and it always will be enough to forgive even the most wicked sinner. This guy right here. Those of you who are out there. His atoning sacrifice is satisfactory. I, I, I like it when men pick up things and they decide that God surely can't forgive them of that because it's too bad. And I say, who are you to think that something that God says He's pleased with is not enough? Though God could never be pleased with you in and of yourself. I promise you this, He is thoroughly pleased with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It is a sacrifice that satisfies the requirements that God made. He has satisfied your sin debt that you owed, atoning for you. And that atoning sacrifice has paid for your freedom. Why can we say there's therefore no condemnation to he who is in Christ Jesus? Because Jesus Christ is my atonement. Don't, don't go looking at your mistakes. Don't go looking at your faults. Right? We can all write a book full of those. Begin to look at the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you are in Him, pay attention to me, men. All of your sin, your past sin, your present sin, and any future sin has been covered and cleansed through the blood, sacrifice, and atonement of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in that. It is a work of God by His grace. Don't think that you need to help Him out. Part of the sanctification process is trying to stop helping Him out. Let Him do what He does. You just be content with walking in His grace and His mercy through the power of His Holy Spirit. So we see freedom from condemnation is provided through justification, powered by God. God did. It is paid for by atonement, the substantial atonement, substitutional atonement, and the satisfactory atonement of Jesus Christ. And then we see, fourthly tonight, that freedom from condemnation is producing sanctification. Paul wants the church that he's writing to here in Rome, and he wants you as well to understand that when we get this, that we have been freed from condemnation, sanctification is going to be produced in our life. Until we get that, you know what we're going to do? We're going to continue just to spin our tires, aren't we? Have you ever met those Christians, or have you ever been that Christian who's just spinning their tires going nowhere? Because you can't get to the point where you truly understand everything that we've talked about up until this point. That this freedom has been provided through justification, powered by God and His grace and His plan. It was paid for by Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is there for us to enjoy the freedom that is there for because of all the things that Paul has taught us up until this point. And part of enjoying that freedom is enjoying the process of sanctification that is going on in our lives and yielding to the Holy Spirit and watching God do what God alone can do, and that is to set you apart for His glory. So we see that those of us who have received that freedom from condemnation was provided by justification, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, powered by God. It's God who did this. You were incapable. You were ignorant. You were insensitive to the things of God. Yet God did this when you were still powerless to do anything good. He did it because He paid for your sins to be forgiven. He paid the price that it took to rescue you from your own sin that displeased Him. Now, because of that, there is going to be a producing or a production of sanctification in your life. Paul has been talking about this all along. Let's read what he says in verse 4. He says, in order that he's freed you from condemnation through justification, through the power of God, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. In order that we can live in obedience. We know how sanctification started when Paul talked about it. 
He talked about first what? Positional sanctification. And if we're going to see sanctification in our life, we're going to have to be positionally sanctified. We know this, that when we are justified, we are then positionally sanctified. God is then setting us apart. He's setting us apart to bring himself glory. It is a complete change in our standing. Romans chapter 6, when we started sanctification, let me remind you of that. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. If you want to look over there, look over there. If you want to, write it down, look at it later. He goes on and he says this, Or do we not know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin? Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way. Is it because you died with him? We know that he talked about this. You were buried with him. You were raised with him in the same way. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we see that there is that positional sanctification where your standing is changed through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also see that Paul talked about this in the production of sanctification, that there is that progressive sanctification. He goes on again in Romans chapter 6. If you just keep reading right where we left off, verse 12, he says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Why? You don't have to anymore. Remember when you didn't have an option? It's all you knew. Now you don't have to. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Have you been brought from death to life? Well, if you, up until this point, have followed along in what Paul is teaching, you've been justified through the power of God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Well, you've been brought from death to life, and if you've been brought from death to life, now you should see that progressive sanctification being produced in your life, that continual change that the Spirit brings in those who are truly born again. He says, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Because we know this, when we were under the law, whether that was the law we conjured up in our own mind, or whether we were Jew and there was the written law that we had, here's the thing, no matter which one it was that you were trying to follow, apart from Christ, you're trying to follow something, even the lost pagan out here denies the existence of God. He's following some law. And in following whatever law he has created in his mind, he is going to fall dreadfully short of that law. Right? Even if it's just the law of the land, he's going to speed. Right? If he speeds one time, guess what? He's broken all the traffic laws up into that point. So whether you want to live by the law of the land, you want to live by the law of God, you set law up for yourself. And law is in direct opposition to anything that is godly. Because what law does, what did we learn that it does? It stirs up your sinful nature. And it's stirring up your sinful nature reveals to you that you are a sinner and you are in need of salvation through Jesus Christ. So when we look at what he's teaching us about progressive sanctification here in Romans chapter 6, again, as we go back and we hit that, those highlights, sin shall not be your master anymore. Why? Because you're not under law, but you're under grace. Because of his grace, you have a new master, don't you? When you were mastered by the law, you were mastered by sin. But because you've been mastered by grace, you are now mastered by the Lord himself, his indwelling Holy Spirit who lives in you. We learned that part of sanctification is realizing that we can live the new way, which is of who? The Spirit. Instead of the old way, which was of our sinful nature. So we see that freedom from condemnation is and will be producing sanctification. If you want to know, have I been freed from condemnation? Is sanctification being produced in your life? Are there fruit that, that you, is there fruit that you see of sanctification? We'll talk more about that when we get to the Spirit in just a second. But examine yourself and see, is, is there something different about me now that I'm claiming that I'm in Christ? So it produces sanctification, positional sanctification, sanctification, that is that complete change in our standing, progressive sanctification, that is a continual change in our state. How many of you are seeing that in your life, that continual change in your state? Your want-tos are changing day in and day out. You're being molded and crafted by the Spirit to look more and more like Jesus. And then we see this, it's not in producing sanctification that's positional and progressive, but it's also producing persevering sanctification. That's the mark of a true believer. That persevering sanctification, true sanctification will last. You can pretend to be 
sanctified for a moment. That's going to fade. You're going to fall back into your sin because that's only a legalistic effort. Try to look like you're sanctified. 1 John chapter 3, he says this in verse 6. John is recording this. He says, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. That word keeps on is very important. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. He's talking about the unbroken habitual lifestyle of sin. He's saying this to you. If you're in Christ, that has been broken, and there will be evidence that that has been broken. And what is that evidence? That is that persevering sanctification that is happening in your life. That ongoing thing that allows you to persevere in your faith. Because I promise you this, you can't erase it from Scripture. All true believers will persevere to the end. And all those who persevere to the end are the true believers. All of those who drop out somewhere in between, those aren't true believers. You go back to the teachings of Jesus. He teaches a parable about the soil. Some of those people, man, they look legit for a minute. But a minute means nothing, does it? We can all pretend for a little while. Even the Pharisees and Jesus, they were trying to pretend, but on the inside, nothing had really changed. They were just pretending on the outside, and it's never going to last. It's not going to stand the test of time. It's not going to stand the test of the fiery trials and suffering that we face, face on this earth as believers. It's part of the Christian life, in case you don't know that. That's why we are called to suffer and to persevere. Why? Because it tests our faith. It reveals to us if our faith is authentic, if it's real, if we really truly have been saved. Isn't it interesting that all these people claim to be saved, and the moment that a trial hits, man, you don't see them anymore. Where'd they go? <laughs> Things got tough. The temperature got turned up. We're out, man. Jesus said it was going to be this way. What did, he, what did he say? What does he teach us about that? They went out from us. Why? Because they were not of us. So when the heat's turned up, the true believer who has been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, powered by God, God did a work in this person who was incapable and ignorant and insensitive, paying an atonement for him through the substantial, substitutional, and satisfactory atonement of Jesus Christ. We'll see in their life the production of sanctification, that positional sanctification that God does for you. That progressive sanctification that as you yield to the Holy Spirit is that continual change in your life. He's given you even the willingness to yield. So don't take credit for that either. You didn't have it before. And then the persevering sanctification. That is that, that inward grit that He gives you by His Spirit to keep on keeping on even when things are tough. Keep on keeping on. Being set apart for the glory of God. That's that persevering sanctification that we see Paul talk about. We see other apostles talk about in many of their writings. True sanctification walks not in the freedom to sin. Many people think that. True sanctification means I have all these freedoms and I can do what I want to do because I'm free in Christ. No, freedom from condemnation, your freedom in Christ, is freedom to not sin. Does everybody understand that? It's freedom to live a holy life and freedom to live a life that represents a holy God. Why? Because he kind of said it like this, Be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And in case you think that's an Old Testament thing right before he gave the law, it was. But the interesting thing is Peter reiterates that, doesn't he? Peter reiterates that in one of his epistles, and he says, oh yeah, let me remind you, it is written, be holy because the Lord your God is holy. Now, we know this. We could not be holy if we weren't first justified, if through the power of God we weren't made capable when we were incapable, we weren't brought into enlightenment when we were ignorant, Brought into sensitivity to the Spirit when we were insensitive. God did all that, right? Because we read that phrase. I'll say it again. God did. You didn't. You couldn't if the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ wasn't applied to your life. You couldn't persevere in anything. You couldn't be free to walk in holiness and to walk in righteousness and to see in your life the example of what God's requirements are lived out. You could only fake it on your best day. And when the heat's turned up, you, like many others, who have false assurance and false claims, would defect from the faith and apostatize just as many have in the past. But aren't you thankful that we're not those who shrink back? We are those who persevere. So we see that freedom from condemnation is provided through justification, powered by God, paid for by atonement, producing sanctification. I hope it is in your life. If it's not, you got a problem. And then it is propelled by the Spirit. 
propelled by the Spirit. We're going to be talking a lot about the Holy Spirit in the next several verses. Let me tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit, or the word Spirit, is only mentioned one other time in chapters 1 through 7. In chapter 8, he is mentioned 20 times in this one chapter. Oh, we could title this lesson, we could title this section. In fact, many of your subtitles here in your Bible say, Life Through the Spirit. Life Through the Spirit. The beginning of life through the Spirit is realizing, therefore there is now no condemnation to he who is in Christ Jesus because of justification, because of the power of God, because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of that sanctification that he's producing in your life. Because of those things, we can now have the assurance that we are being propelled by the Spirit. In fact, it is the Spirit who is doing the work in us. The last part of verse 4 tells us that. He says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. You want to meet the righteous requirements of the law? What does he say there? Live according to the Spirit. Now, I want to help you. He's going to tell us this in a few verses in the next couple of weeks. He's going to tell you that if you're really a believer, the Spirit's there. But if the Spirit's not there, you're not really a believer. That's for all our Pentecostal friends who are waiting for that second blessing. Uh, that they call a second blessing that they ought to call salvation because the Spirit came in at that time, that's when they really got saved. They're a little confused on that because they don't read Romans, I guess. I don't know. But the fact is, if the Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you're not born again. And if you're claiming to be born again and there is no Spirit here and available in you to walk in, well, you're not truly born again. You've received a bill of goods and a lie. So, so go tell all of your United Pentecostal friends that they're wrong about that and they're wrong about the Trinity, and that modalism is still heresy. Okay? All right. So, we are, because of the freedom from condemnation, we are propelled by the Spirit. The Spirit indwells all of God's people. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple, and that God's Spirit lives in you? Let me remind you who he's writing to there. The church. And in 1 Corinthians, he wasn't writing to a church who had it all figured out, in case you've never read the 1 Corinthian letter. He's writing to a church who was messed up. They were, man, they were taking paganism from this ideology and paganism from this ideology. Let's shake this all together, put it with a little Judaism, uh, some, some more idolatry that maybe we found on some mountain somewhere. Oh, yeah, don't forget sexual immorality, orgies, right? Can you imagine? I mean, Paul is writing to the church in Corinthians, to a Sunday school class potentially, and saying, Hey, stop the orgy. Stop the sexual immorality. It's not for God's people. Why? Because that's what they had known their whole lives. And he's letting them know that's not for God's people. It's not what you do anymore. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You're the temple of God. In fact, in that same text there, he's warning them about fleeing from sexual immorality, even as believers. He's saying, Hey, the Spirit lives in you, and He's a very important part of this sanctification process. In fact, He is the one who propels you because He indwells you. So please understand this. If you're a believer, the Spirit lives in you. He doesn't live in you just because He needs a place to hang out. He lives in you because He's making you holy. That is His name, the Holy Spirit. Y'all do know that, right? Third person of the Trinity. Third person of the Trinity, not an it or thing. I get offended when you hear people say it, the Holy Spirit. No, the Holy Spirit is not an it. This is really going to mess some people up. He's a he. Why? Because Scripture says that. He's the third person of a triune God. So he is God, revealed to us in spirit, in fact, indwelling us by his spirit. He is the person of God who Jesus promised to his believers who would come and live in them, that comforter, that counselor. The one who gives them the power. What did he tell them? When the Holy Spirit comes on you. Y'all remember this in Acts? Where he said, the Holy Spirit comes on you, you'll wave flags around the church and run around shaking a tambourine and speaking in unknown tongues and doing all kinds of crazy things. It's not what he said. So when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will receive power to be a witness. And a witness of what he did. So all these people who say the evidence of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is being baptized in Jesus' name alone. All these people who say those things, they're in error. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is the fact that you are a witness to Jesus Christ. And you are a witness to Jesus Christ. Watch this. If you understand that there is no condemnation for he who is in Christ Jesus because 
There has been a provided justification for you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is a power that came from God, and that power was to take incapable, powerless man, make them capable of believing and repenting, taking ignorant men, enlightening them to the truth so that they would believe, taking men who were insensitive to the things of God and making them sensitive to the things of God because there was no other way. It is in that same God and His plan of salvation that we see the the atonement that was made by Jesus Christ that produced sanctification in you. And now the Holy Spirit lives in you. And because the Holy Spirit lives in you, He is empowering you to go tell people about justification, to tell people about the power of God that saves, and to tell people about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that sanctifies a once wicked person like Kirk Hall. You can use my name if you're afraid to use yours. And sanctifies me and sets me apart, what? For a holy God. If it sets me apart for a holy God, I promise you this, the evidence of that is going to be holiness coming to fruition in my life because of the indwelling Spirit that dwells in all of God's people. He is the Spirit who not only indwells God's people, He's the Spirit who renews God's people. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. (laughs) Let's beat this drum again. Not because of righteous things we had done. But but I chose to accept Jesus as my Savior. (laughs) That sounds like a righteous thing you did. Too bad I don't save you. Why? He makes it very clear. It's God who does the choosing. It's God who does the calling. It's God who does the saving. Please understand that. It doesn't make you bad because you believe that or you teach that. It makes you scriptural when you believe and you teach those things. Even if it's popular, even if it's not, here's what I don't have to do. I don't have to apologize for what a sovereign God does by His own choosing. I just have to say, here's what the Bible says. You can argue with Him if you want to. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Man, I don't know about you, but in Titus there, as Paul's writing to Titus, he sums up a lot of theological debates there, doesn't he? Not because of anything that you have done, it's because the Spirit has renewed you. How many of you are thankful that you were born of the Spirit? Watch this. Before you say amen, while you were still kicking against God, while you were still ignorant, while you were still wicked and sinful, you are born of the Spirit. You remember when Paul was born of the Spirit? There on the road to Damascus? The light shone from heaven. He says, Lord. And he says this, why are you kicking against me? Why are you kicking against the goads? Why are you fighting against me, Saul? A lot of people present the gospel as if Saul came running to God. Saul thought he had God. Saul was sincere in everything that he did. He knew the law. He was pretending to be obedient to the law, even though in his inward man, he knew he was just as wicked as the rest of us. Because he's the one writing this stuff after he was renewed by the Spirit and made Paul. Why are you kicking against me? For those of you who might be kicking against him, Aren't you thankful that He loves you in spite of you? That He'll save you in spite of you? I promise you when He saved me, I was kicking against Him. I thought I had everything together, right? Because everybody told me, man, you're a little kid, you got baptized, everything's great. (laughs) Okay, cool. That'll bust in hell wide open. Why? Because I went swimming in a baptistry in a church because they told me if you pray this little prayer and raise your hand, well then, and you get baptized, well then everything's going to be okay. Those were righteous things I did. Not righteous things he had done. And here's what he just told us. We can't be saved by the righteous things that we do. I thought I was doing the right thing. All the while I was doing the wrong thing, just like Saul. But I also remember that day that he called my name. Or this sheep heard his voice. You know what I knew immediately? I knew immediately I was a wretch. I was a wreck. I was a sinner. I was destined for hell. I was destined for judgment, just like Romans taught us in the first few chapters. I was depraved in every element of my being. Yet while I was dead in my sin, He made me alive 
in Christ Jesus. Why? The Spirit renewed me in that moment. This whole conversation again in John chapter 3 where Jesus shows us and teaches us, if you'll go back and read it, that a person is born again even before they believe. That's how it works. The Spirit quickens us, renews us, allowing us to now believe. Why? Because we were in a state where we could not believe. Why? No one seeks Him. There's none righteous. No, not one. Then we are propelled by the Spirit because of that freedom that He gives us. The Spirit indwells God's people. The Spirit renews God's people. The Spirit empowers us to produce fruit. Those obedient works for God that bring Him glory. We know the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. I hope you do. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and long-suffering. Those things will be produced in the life of the believer. Look at your life. Are those things being produced? That, that's evident that the Spirit is sanctifying you. Those are the things that please God. Is that being produced in your life in some measure? Please look at that. It's very important. Romans chapter 7, verse 6. He says, so my brothers, you also died to the law. We just covered this through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might, what? Bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. He goes on to say, but now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It is the Spirit who propels us into this freedom from the condemnation that once controlled us. He propels us into freedom at salvation. Remember that day you were saved and immediately you felt free for the very first time. That you could breathe. I know that's how it worked in my life. I felt like I can breathe for the very first time. Whatever weight that was upon me. And I know this, it was the weight of my own sin. I learned that. I didn't know that at that point. But I learned that was the weight of my own sin that I was carrying around when Jesus removed that weight from me. Because He bore that sin for me at the cross and I died that moment. When that was removed, I had freedom at salvation. Aren't you thankful that we do have freedom in Christ and not condemnation? You remember when you were saved? Immediately, through the Spirit, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it just all happened. He reminded you of the wretch that you really are. He gave you the faith to believe and the power to repent. And as those things transpired, He lifted condemnation from you at that very moment. You went from, I am a dirty, rotten scoundrel, to thank you, God, that you saved a wretched sinner like me. And all glory began to point to Him. The Spirit renewed you at salvation, propelling you into the freedom that Jesus Christ died for you to have. Not only does He do that at salvation, He's doing that continually in our lives, isn't He? Reminding us. That's why we read the Word. Reminding us of who we are now in Christ. That's what Paul's doing here. He's reminding them, wait a second. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to he who is in Christ Jesus. All those things from, from chapter 1 all the way up until now. I want you to hear all of those things and how important those things are so that I can tell you because of those things, condemnation has been lifted from you. You are free in Christ. No condemnation. That means this. No condemnation now. No condemnation next week. No condemnation next month. Next year. For all eternity, there will be never ever again any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because He set us free from the law of sin and death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a liberating truth. What a great promise. Straight from the Word of God here tonight that the work of Jesus Christ has freed us from the condemnation that we definitely deserve. For any of us to say that we don't deserve that is to err tremendously. The best thing for you to do is to own the fact that you deserved it. But by His grace and His mercy in Christ, you have been set free. And this freedom has been ordained, established, and enabled by the power and the grace of God to save the most wicked of sinners and to set them free from the condemnation and the judgment that did await them before Jesus Christ graciously offered Himself on a cross to rescue them. Are you thankful for that tonight? We're free from condemnation. says the provided justification 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Powered by God. God did. When you were powerless and you couldn't, God did. He did make you capable of repenting, capable of believing. He did, in your ignorance, open your blind eyes. He did, in your insensitivity, cause you to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit drawing you, allowing you to continue to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit moving and leading you in your life even now as a believer. He did pay for your, or your sin through the sacrifice of atonement that Jesus Christ made. And he is, if you're a true believer today, I promise you this, producing sanctification in your life as proof that these other things have truly happened and that sanctification is being propelled by the Holy Spirit in your life. Let's pray and let's thank Him for what He's done. Lord, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the therefore. That there is therefore no condemnation to He who is in Christ Jesus. We thank You for that, Lord, that condemnation was removed from us. And we thank You that You were condemned in our place. Let us never, ever, ever take that for granted. Let us never, ever forget that. It's not that condemnation didn't happen. It's that it happened to You in our stead. Thank You, Jesus, that You are our substitution. Thank You that You stood in our place when You did not have to, when You did not deserve it. And You've set us free from the condemnation that belongs to us. We are forever indebted to You. All glory, honor, and praise be Yours and Yours alone. Thank You for being such a wonderful Savior. We love You. We thank You for loving us even in spite of us and saving us when we could not save ourselves. We pray these things in Your mighty name. Amen.